We are absolutely de delighted to welcome Rear Admiral Michael McAllister, commander of the 17th Coast Guard District, to be with us on an, an auspicious anniversary, for it was 150 years ago this year that the Coast Guard's presence first appeared in Alaska as the revenue cutter Lincoln transported the first U.S. federal officials to Sitka for the formal transfer of proprietorship from Russia to the United States. And so I think it's actually fitting that CSIS is releasing a new report on this 150th anniversary entitled Maritime Futures. Let's see if we can get this work in here. Uh, Maritime Futures, the Bering Strait and the Arctic region. This research actually grew from work that we were completing under the U.S. Chairmanship of the Arctic Council uh, because the Arctic Council agenda did certainly focus on maritime safety and stewardship. I will make a confession to you that when one thinks of the most significant geostrategic maritime straits in the world, names such as the Straits of Hormuz, the Straits of Malacca, the Turkish Straits, they easily come to mind you don't often encounter the Bering Strait in that strategic and notable list. And there's an important reason why. It doesn't seem to be uh, very frequently traversed, seasonally certainly, and predominantly by local barge and resupply traffic along the Alaskan coast. But we're hoping after this conversation this afternoon to try to put the Bering Strait on that strategic list because the Bering Strait is not just an increasingly important transportation corridor that links the North Pacific to the Arctic Ocean through the Bering Sea, but it also represents the maritime boundary line between the United States and Russia. I'm often, uh, my, when I meet with my European colleagues and we're talking about European security and, and Russia, they say, oh, you don't understand, you don't share a border with Russia. And I said, but we do share a border with Russia. You have to remember the other side. So that's always, a, I think, an, e an equally important reminder that Russia and the United States share this strait. So, as I said, your skepticism is warranted. If you don't believe the Bering Strait quite deserves the, the attention that we give to the Straits of Hormuz, but I would certainly argue things are beginning to change. Russia has enormous strategic economic ambitions for the Ar Russian Arctic that include turning the Northern Sea Route into a viable transportation route. Now, President Putin has said he envisions a Suez Canal of the North, and that's extremely ambitious, and certainly we're far from that. But it's clear that Russia's energy ambitions centered on the Yamal Peninsula and the port of Sabeta, shipping LNG to Asian markets is a very significant contribution. Some of that will be coming online at the end of this year and beginning of next. And even if a portion of Russia's economic ambitions for the Arctic are met, the Bering Strait is going to see a lot more LNG car carriers. China equally has strategic and economic ambitions in the Arctic, also centered on the Yamal LNG uh, uh, production, but also shipping and potentially 
fisheries. I think it's no accident that the Chinese icebreaker Zhui Long circumnavigated the Arctic this year, traversed the Northern Sea Route as well as the Northwest Passage. In fact, if I read correctly, uh, the Coast Guard had a big hand in uh, doing a medevac from the Zhui Long when it was in port at Norm Nome, Alaska. So we're seeing a growing role of China in the Arctic. And when we first wrote this report, we saw that the United States was not incredibly interested in the economic opportunities in the Arctic. Well, I think that position is changing as well, as the Trump administration has uh, rethought of opening offshore and onshore leasing in Alaska as well as Anwar. We've also had recent decisions coming out about potentially uh, for U.S.-Russian cooperation. And I think it's, it's one of those opportunities where the window is open, we need to go through it and see how to strengthen our cooperation. Our report, of course, focuses on enhancing U.S. readiness in the Barron Strait. We, of course, uh, encourage, as we have for many, many years, the U.S. procurement of uh, a significant icebreaker fleet to develop our capabilities. We certainly strongly encouraged in the report a vessel traffic management scheme for the Bering Straits. I think Admiral McAllister is going to have some good news to report on that. We also want to enhance our satellite communications, the integration of information, particularly now as the uh, polar code is mandatory, making sure we have ships that are safe, that are traversing this very, very narrow strait. We recommend a deep water port uh, in the American Arctic. We really encourage an enhancement of, of Coast Guard presence as we envision an increase in maritime traffic in the Bering Straits. So I'm going to end before I, I welcome Admiral McAllister to the podium. Um, I don't know whether, whether you caught this or not, Secretary Tillerson gave an address yesterday at the Wilson Center um, and he, uh, to talk about the United States and Europe, and he was asked a question about the Arctic. I thought he must have known we were holding this conversation, and he gave me an important quote. I'm going to end this as I, I welcome uh, the Admiral up. According to Secretary Tillerson, this is how he answered a question about the Arctic. The Arctic is important today. It's going to be increasingly important in the future, particularly as those waterways have opened up. What I can tell you is the United States is behind. We're behind all the other Arctic nations. They've gotten way ahead of us. The Russians made it a strategic priority. Even the Chinese are building icebreakers. Now, why are they building icebreakers? They're not an Arctic nation. Because they see the value of these passages. So we're late to the game. I think we have one functioning icebreaker today. The Coast Guard's very proud of it. 
as crummy as it is. We may want to talk about that crummy icebreakers in just a minute, but let me welcome Admiral Michael McAllister, uh, who assumed the duties of commander of District 17 in June of last year, um, and uh, he has a command of 2,500 active duty reserve civilian and auxiliary personnel. He employs 15 cutters, 52 boats, and 17 aircraft. So there is a power in that Arctic. Uh, previously, Admiral uh, McAllister served as the Deputy Director of Operations for Headquarters uh, in the United States Northern Command and has had a distinguished Coast Guard career, a little more south, uh, serving in Georgia and Charleston, South Carolina, but I think he's enjoying Juneau and the North. So with your applause, please welcome Admiral McAllister. Thank you so much. All right, good afternoon. I hope everyone is well. Uh, thanks for taking the time to uh, come and join us today. And Heather, I thank you and uh, CSIS for continuing the Arctic dialogue. Um, I know uh, from past experience, I was a uh, director of Coast Guard strategy and I got the chance to oversee our uh, Coast Guard Fellows Program, the Coast Guard men and women that we send to join places like CSIS and others. And so I know we sent you a ringer and John Cole, I hope he's uh, a good addition yes, uh, to your team. And I know we value the relationship that we have with CSIS, so thank you for that. Um, our Commandant Admiral Zunkoft was here uh, not too long ago. And um, he talked, I think, more at the strategic level about some of the challenges that we face in the Arctic. I'm going to try to talk at the operational level because I'm the regional commander. Um, but, uh, but I'm interested in wherever your questions might lead us, uh, whether that's strategic, operational, or tactical in, nation, in nature. As Heather said, I get the, the great privilege of leading the Coast Guard men and women that do operations in the Arctic uh, 24 hours a day, almost 365 days a year in various forms. And uh, Heather's right, we've been doing that for a while. So um, as she mentioned, uh, the uh, revenue cutter, which was a uh, predecessor to the United States Coast Guard, actually dropped off uh, some of the first federal officials in Sitka. But uh, we also did our first Bering Sea and Arctic patrol in 1867, 150 years ago. And we've been doing those patrols almost every year since. We took a short hiatus during uh, World War II because we were more engaged in uh, combat operations, uh, part of the military services of the United States, but, uh, but we have had a long presence there. But that doesn't mean that uh, we're necessarily fully prepared, uh, although we certainly uh, have focused on our preparations, the next 150 years in the Arctic uh, certainly are certainly, certainly gonna look different and we need to be prepared for that. What I was hoping to do here is uh, just st set the stage in a few areas, uh, and then I'll turn it over uh, to Heather and to those of you um, here for your questions. So let me start off. I, I think the cause for action, the reason why the Coast Guard is there is fairly well known, but I'll, I'll address it just quickly. Of course, the ice is melting. Uh, there's not a lot of debate about that. Uh, and as a result of that ice melting, there is more traffic. And as a result of that, more risk of incidents, which impact our nation's safety, our security, and our environmental protection, or what we refer in the Coast Guard to stewardship. So as the operational commander for the region, uh, I mount a, a recurring annual operation called Arctic Shield, and I really have three purposes there. One is to identify the capability gaps that need to be filled for a future which is going to involve more and more traffic going through the Bering Strait, whether it's going through the Northwest Pass, the Northern Sea Route, uh, or other future routes. 
I am more and more carrying out routine Coast Guard missions, search and rescue, law enforcement, oil spill response uh, in an opening Arctic, particularly in the uh, US uh, exclusive economic zone. And, uh, and just as importantly, we provide the visible maritime presence for the United States in, in the area that, uh, that we need to protect our resources. You know, specifically thinking about the EEZ, but certainly extraterritorial beyond that as well. Um, and I know there are other federal agencies, DOD is there, but we provide the most overt presence and, uh, and ensure that our nation's strategic needs are being addressed. So what does that look like? And I think uh, if there's a slide available that I sent you, I brought a couple of photos just to um, uh, put a little bit of an illustration to this. But we push forward uh, ships uh, each summer, including uh, an icebreaker, the Healy. Oh, yeah, the clicker's for me? right there. I think you press down, maybe. Press down. Maybe. Or oh, one or, more down. One more down. Oop. <laughs> I get it. There Aha. we are. Thank you. Bingo. Um, so a couple of photos uh, shown here. So we have uh, the Coast Guard cutter Healy, uh, which we push forward. We have high endurance cutters. They're not necessarily ice capable cutters, but they can operate in uh, ice free waters. We have uh, buoy tenders. Uh, in fact, the picture on the lower right hand corner is a shot from the Coast Guard cutter Maple. Uh, we sent her through the Northwest Pass. Uh, this summer. She had to go do some work in our Coast Guard yard, shipyard in Baltimore, Maryland. Um, being the commander in Alaska, I had a choice. I could send her south through the Panama Canal or I send her north through the Northwest Pass. To me, that was no choice. It was the Northwest Pass and uh, we learned a lot from that. Believe it or not, that was the first time a non-ice-breaking Coast Guard ship had gone through the Northwest Pass in 60 years. Um, we had to, uh, to, to hole up the ship, to, to, uh, to lay it up for about 10 days, waiting for the Canadian Coast Guard to be able to break ice from the east to the west to allow that ship to go through. And even though that is an ice-capable ship, it uh, wasn't capable of, of breaking through the amount of ice that, that we found on the Northwest Pass. So we learned, we learned a lot from that, uh, particularly in Northwest Pass operations and coordination with the Canadians. Uh, but those ships and the aircraft that are attached to them, the helicopters, are out there doing Coast Guard missions, as I mentioned before. We're also doing joint operations. So you'll see a picture up there uh, of the Coast Guard and the uh, Canadian Navy. I guess I didn't make the final cut. Uh, but uh, the Canadian Navy has a presence uh, in the Northwest Pass during the uh, open water times, and they have to come through U.S. waters to do that. So we take advantage of that and do some joint operations uh, and interchanges with them. A lot of community engagement uh, with uh, Native Alaskan communities. And there's an, a, a real importance to this. The first is, it's an our opportunity to provide training, uh, cold weather training, uh, ice rescue training, oil spill response training, mass rescue training to uh, Arctic villages. But it's also an opportunity for us to extract traditional knowledge, which is important for operating in the Arctic uh, from those engagements. We also have a wide variety of shoreside personnel that go out and do things. And they're not um, uh, quite as, uh, as well known, as well seen, but it's an important element to some of the things that I know we're going to talk about. So for example, we send people to do inspections of ships. Uh, ships that pull into the Red Dog Mine, as an example, north of Kotzebue. Those are foreign flag ships. 
we have a duty as the port state control authority to inspect those ships and make sure that the flag state is carrying out their inspection uh, requirements. So as we implement the polar code, for example, uh, that's an important part of the US's responsibility to ensure that other nations are, are fulfilling their requirements under the, new requ under, under the polar code, uh, both for an environmental perspective and ship safety perspective. We do exercises, so uh, one of the, uh, the photos up here is from an oil spill exercise, a three-day exercise that we did in Barrow. It includes not only the local village, the native corporations, but all, all, also the larger oil spill response organizations that are hired by private industry to be there, other government agencies, including the state and federal agencies, and so a good opportunity to learn about how to uh, respond to oil spills in the Arctic, which is exceedingly difficult to do sometimes. And then uh, uh, I'll describe this uh, a little bit more in a little bit more detail, but we do mass rescue planning with villages as well. You can imagine how difficult it is for a village of three or four hundred people to prepare for the potential evacuation of a ship, including potentially cruise ships, uh, where people are coming ashore, and then how do they handle those people? And so we did a large exercise in concert with the Department of Defense, the U.S. Northern Command, last year. And now we're taking the lessons learned from that, and we're bringing it to all the other villages that didn't get to participate and helping them put together their mass rescue plans so that they're uh, as prepared as those who participated directly in the exercise. So let me talk a little bit about traffic and what we're seeing there and uh, how we're managing some of that traffic. So. Um, we just put together our statistics for 2017. We measure uh, the, the number of ships that are going through the Bering Strait and the number of ships that operate in kind of our U.S. area of interest, which is uh, north of the Bering uh, Strait in the U.S. and Russian EEZs. And uh, traffic is actually down this year from, from 2016. It's down about 10%. Um, it's down in cargo, and we attribute that largely to the fact that Russia surged uh, cargo to, to build out their military presence, to build out the Yamal LNG facility. And now that those facilities are starting to come online, there's less construction traffic uh, moving through to facilitate those, those projects. We saw a decrease in cruise ships. Uh, you know, it was uh, of lots of people's interest when the Crystal Serenity with 1,700 people on board uh, went through the Northwest Pass two years ago. This year they did the same trip. They did not sell out which I think was a surprise to the cruise line. And they've decided that they're not gonna do it for 2018. What they are doing is building a smaller cruise ship, a, an ice class ship, which actually fits better with the industry that has existed there for, for more than 10 years. And that is of these smaller boutique uh, type cruises uh, throughout, throughout the Arctic. Um, and then we've seen a decrease in science uh, ship activity as well, and we don't know exactly what to attribute that to yet, but, but overall traffic's down about uh, 10%. And, um, you know, when you talk about traffic and traffic management schemes in the Bering, it's, it is important to put it a little bit in context. Uh, the number of ships that we have going through the Bering Strait in an entire year is about equal to the amount of traffic in the English Channel in one day. Uh, it's about equal to three or four days of traffic in and out of the Port of Baltimore, uh, which is about a medium-sized port for the U.S. So it's not a high number of, of vessels going through. Uh, but the impacts of those vessels, or the potential impact of those vessels, in terms of the environment, in terms of the difficulty in, in responding to an incident, means that the, the impacts are outsized if there is an incident, 
and that there are huge challenges to being able to respond quickly to save lives, to save property, and to protect the environment if something bad happens. And so that's why we continue to be focused on building the right governance structures, including traffic uh, management schemes uh, for an opening ocean with greater traffic likely in the future. And I should say, uh, even though traffic is down, the, the long-term projections for traffic, based on the Committee of Maritime Transportation uh, System, is that it's still uh, going to grow in the future. We see that as a general trend. And uh, depending on oil and gas activity, depending on whether uh, container ships and other larger cargo ships uh, end up using particularly the northern sea route, we're still looking at somewhere between a two and four time increase uh, in traffic over the next 10 years. And um, as you know, there are other activities, LNG, which is gaining in, uh, in volume as well, which will ensure that uh, traffic continues to increase over time. One of the things that we did to manage that traffic is we started a port access route study. It designates a two-way shipping route, uh, precautionary areas, and areas to be avoided, um, which really try to balance a few things. One is economic, economic trade routes, meaning we, we looked at where ships wanted to go, and we tried to devise paths that were consistent with those, uh, those track lines based on history. Tried to minimize the impact on communities, particularly communities that are, you know, um, are subsistence-based, meaning that they're going out and hunting uh, or fishing. Uh, try to minimize the impact on the environment. The further you can uh, keep ships off of land, the more time you have to react if a ship suddenly uh, is stricken and is now drifting towards land, uh, as an example. And uh, it allows us to focus where we do our bottom surveys, our, our, uh, our bottom mapping, uh, to kind of a defined route uh, so that with the limited resources that NOAA and the Coast Guard and others have, we can apply them to the places where ships are going to be operating most frequently. And uh, we did extensive outreach uh, over a period of uh, eight years. Uh, in fact, we, uh, we just finished another public comment period. This was the second one this year, uh, and this is the final report out of the 17th District. We, uh, we got 20,000 pages of comments. Now, if you can believe, trying to go through all those and reply to them all. Now, a lot of those are scientific studies that kind of get appended uh, to people's comments, but, uh, but that's how interested people are in traffic management within the Bering Sea. And uh, I'm proud to, uh, to, to note, uh, just uh, two weeks ago now, um, we were able to gain Russia's support to submit uh, bilaterally to the uh, IMO, the International Maritime Organization, um, these two-way shipping routes, the precautionary areas, and three of the four recommended areas to be avoided uh, for, for consideration of the IMO. And what that means is if the IMO adopts it, it is a globally recognized uh, scheme that mariners are encouraged to follow. And the only reason why the fourth ATBA, the area to be avoided, wasn't uh, adopted or wasn't put forward immediately is because Russia had to do some more outreach on their end, but they actually took ours, the US proposal, and expanded it. So we have, uh, we have a good partner in terms of traffic management uh, moving forward. So let me expand upon our international cooperation a little bit. So in addition to managing our waterways, we have great relationships at the operational level with, uh, on law enforcement, particularly fisheries law enforcement. And, um, we work in a variety of different locations, including on the high seas with Russia, uh, to combat illegal 
uh, underreported and unregulated uh, fishing. In fact, we had a 2015 U.S.-Russian agreement on that subject that we actively uh, participate in. And just in 2017 alone, to give you a sense of how often we exercise that, uh, I shouldn't say exercise, we, employ, we, we, uh, we use that, that agreement. Uh, we've done five cases where we coordinated with the uh, Kamchatka Border Guard, the, the, the Border Guard of Russia. Um, five cases, two of them resulted in major seizures, seizure of the vessel and the catch. Two of them resulted in major violations, and, uh, and that's out of five. So 80% of them resulted in enforcement action, and um, we're hopeful that that has uh, an impact on uh, compliance levels uh, in, uh, in the Bering Sea. I mentioned uh, that we have, we have good relationships on search and rescue as well. I mentioned our, what we called Arctic Chinook, which was that mass rescue operation or exercise we did with the Department of Defense. That was actually the first exercise under the new Arctic Council Agreement on search and rescue. And we had participation from the, uh, most of the Arctic Council nations in that and uh, uh, received uh, or learned some great lessons that can be applied uh, throughout the Arctic. And we just finished up another uh, exercise called Arctic Guardian, where we sent a Coast Guard cutter to Iceland uh, back here in September. And they did combine search and rescue operations. And then there's everyday coordination as well through the rescue and coordination centers, which are very mature um, uh, frameworks or uh, institutions for coordinating the tactical execution of search and rescue missions, whether they're medevacs or emergency locating uh, beacon uh, uh, that are going off and we don't know exactly where it is. Anyway, all of that happens on a daily basis. The other thing that uh, we're working together with the Russians on really well is uh, oil spill response. So we actually have an existing 1989 agreement called the Joint Contingency Plan with Russia on oil spills. And um, it's been an on-again, off-again relationship with respect to our ability to uh, exercise that, but uh, just uh, in 2016, we extended the uh, invitation uh, to gather back around the table, and uh, Russia has signed on for doing that. So we actually met not too long ago in Anchorage, and we agreed on a work plan to update the joint, that con joint contingency plan, and we're looking to do an exercise in, uh, in 2018 or 2019. And so across all of these areas, law enforcement, search and rescue, environmental response, and waterways management, we see the relationship with Russia as positive. Um, and there are, of course, other uh, countries, uh, Arctic Council countries, other countries with Arctic interests uh, that we continue to work with as well. Uh, Canada, one of our greatest partners. Uh, we have similar partnerships with China, and I'm happy to, to discuss those uh, if you uh, would like to talk those during the Q&A with Korea, with Japan. And, and so we think this is a bright spot uh, amongst uh, relationships amongst nations uh, in the Arctic. Let me finish out with um, what I think are the persistent uh, capability gaps that we face and the criticality of those gaps. I mentioned earlier huge challenges in the Arctic. Um, we're often asked, do we have an awareness of what's going on in the Arctic? And, and maritime domain awareness is kind of a broad term. It includes a lot of things. It includes environmental data, includes tracking ships. Uh, and, and a variety of other things. And I would tell you, we actually have a pretty good idea of what's going on, at least in terms of ship traffic. Uh, I can see any significant threat 
um, to the United States. And, you know, and I have a lot of partners, including the Department of Defense, that helped me provide that, that picture. We are still working on a lot of the other data, the environmental data, whether it's ice data, whether it's uh, the movement of uh, marine mammals and other things that are of concern to us. And so there is a lot of uh, work going on in that, in that arena. Uh, communications are still tough. The good news is through the great expansion over the past few years of commercial satellite service, we actually can talk with commercial vessels uh, with great, great confidence and great reliability. The bad thing is I can't necessarily talk with small vessels. I don't have the local, I have the global network in place. I don't have the local network in place to reach out to, to fishing vessels that are operating in the vicinity of a whale uh, hunt and, and warn them out of the area. Um, I also um, am still limited in terms of uh, military or secure communications and we're working with uh, the U.S. Northern Command uh, and there are some uh, good capabilities coming in the next few years which we think will close some of those gaps. Um, we also have a gap in just our ability to provide a sovereign presence. While I push forward large cutters and aircraft, icebreakers, buoy tenders, at any given time, I will only have one or two ships in the Arctic during the open water seasons and a few helicopters uh, in addition to that. And if you, if you know Alaska, if you know the EEZ, it's just too big an area to try to cover with such a small number of assets. And so we're encouraged by the, uh, the fact that we're replacing many of our 40 or 50 year old Coast Guard cutters, new offshore patrol cutters, new national security cutters. Very encouraged by the discussion about icebreakers. Recent authorization for a billion dollars to build the first icebreaker, really the replacement for the Polar Star. And we've got some of that money uh, appropriated to us already and that acquisition is already off and running. Um, but even, even with that capability, there's still a lack of, of presence there. And that's something that we, the Coast Guard, aspire to provide more of. And then, really, it's all about logistics. It's about the port services, whether it's a deep water port or a series of smaller ports, staging areas, forward operating locations, the ability to go to the Arctic and, and sustain in the Arctic as needed, whether it's for a response or for that everyday sovereign presence, for carrying out Coast Guard missions. It's really hard to do now at such great distances. What it has forced us to do, which actually works fairly well given the current amount of traffic, is focus on a mobile, seasonal, scalable presence, which means we take our larger ships and we press them forward. They can be up there for three or four weeks at a time before they need to come back and refuel. Um, and they can move wherever the threat might need to be. Uh, and that works for now. But as traffic continues in the future, particularly if we uh, reopen oil and gas and the northern sea route takes off as, as projected, we may need to have a larger footprint uh, in the Arctic moving forward. So let me close by, uh, by, by saying there's a good deal of activity going on to try to close some of these, these capability gaps, um, focused on both today's missions and, and tomorrow's missions. I would say, and I agree with, with uh, Heather in her, in her paper, this is an inflection point for, uh, for the United States. Uh, it's it's an inflection point which is complicated by great levels of uncertainty about what the future is really going to look like. But we do need to make some investments if we want to keep ahead of the traffic. If we want to keep, if we want to ensure that Coast Guard and other federal services are available uh, to, uh, to mariners when they need them in the future, we need to make those investments now ahead of the need 
otherwise, we risk we have, we have to assume the risk of vessels operating there without the proper services. One thing I am certain of, your United States Coast Guard will continue to do what it can to lead uh, the improvements that are needed uh, in the Arctic across all of our missions, whether they be safety, security, or uh, environmentally uh, uh, responsive uh, in the future. We can't do it alone, so we'll work in, in concert with a great number of partners, both internationally and nationally, to get that done. So thank you very much again, Heather, for inviting me, and I look forward to your questions, and Heather, I'll turn it back over yeah, to you. We'll just go right up there. Thank you so much, Admiral. Well, thank you so much. That was a get that heavy, <laughs> big lecture out of our podium, out of our way. Uh, thank you so much. Um, gosh, I have so many questions, uh, and I promise, though, to welcome uh, our audience into it. Great news about the IMO and the vessel traffic management scheme. I have to say, we don't have much good news by way of the U.S.-Russia dynamic, but this is really encouraging. It's very pragmatic, um, and uh, it's, it's to be celebrated. So thanks to the Coast Guard and your persistence uh, in pursuing this. The one thing I, I would like to focus a little bit on China. Uh, it, it's one thing our report, because we were looking at the bilateral dynamic and that joint management of the Bering Strait, we didn't really talk about that. I think that's really been a new dynamic. Um, not just because uh, the Shui Long uh, visited uh, Alaska yes, this we, summer, yes, but we're seeing a greater scientific, economic presence of China throughout the Arctic. We, uh, you know, trying to understand the announcements that were made when President Trump was in Beijing about these LNG deals and potential infrastructure. How do, how are you thinking about a larger footprint? Uh, infrastructure, energy footprint with China. China's member of the North Pacific Coast Guard Forum. Right. You do work with them bilaterally, bilaterally as well. Help us understand that. Well, let me uh, let me start with kind of an operational perspective, and because that informs my strategic perspective, um, we have great operational level relationships with the Chinese Coast Guard. Uh, you mentioned the North Pacific Coast Guard Forum. Uh, we conduct an annual operation on the high seas as well, enforcing. Uh, uh, high seas drift net uh, regulations uh, under various treaties. And we actually bring Chinese ship riders on board U.S. Coast Guard vessels. Uh, many of the vessels that we see out on the high seas have Chinese uh, ties of some sort, whether they're Chinese flagged or Chinese owned. And uh, having ship riders on board allows, us, allows the Chinese to take enforcement action using our platforms. And so it provides them an extended presence and allows us to have an extended presence at the same time. And uh, we uh, occasionally do joint patrols with Chinese Coast Guard ships. And so we look at uh, the Chinese from a maritime uh, governance perspective as um, a, a good partner. And, uh, and I don't think we fear the, the uh, movement of the Chinese into the Arctic. I think we pay attention to what's going on. And uh, uh, just as an example, um, I showed this to a group earlier today, but we had a uh, uh, what we call an automated information AIS system screenshot from the 14th of September. And it showed all of the uh, research and other governmental uh, vessels from nations that were in or near the U.S. exclusive economic zone on one particular day. The Zhui Long was there. There were two Russian uh, research vessels, not in U.S. waters, but just outside. Uh, Canadians, South Koreans, uh, Japanese, uh, French. Um, and, uh, and our two 
US flag vessels. One was a, um, a science vessel, which is contracted uh, out. The other is owned by the National Science Foundation, but actually uh, leased by the University of Fairbanks. That was our US sovereign presence on the 14th of September with all of this research activity going on around the US exclusive economic zone. There's a lot of people out there looking at the extended continental shelf claims under UNCLOS. And um, you know we're a big believer in the freedom of navigation, so we don't necessarily raise our voices of concern, but we do pay close attention to what these other nations are doing in and around our exclusive economic zone. And you know we provide the presence that we can to make sure that all of that activity is as advertised, as negotiated through the Department of State, or is you know otherwise appropriate. That snapshot is really a global Arctic, uh, where Absolutely. you see so many uh, international vessels uh, increasing. We saw this September uh, the Arctic Coast Guard Forum was having a live search and rescue uh, exercise off the coast of Greenland. Do you know if there's any vision or any planning to have the next Arctic search and rescue exercise in your neck of the woods, have the Arctic Coast Guard Forum uh, go towards the Chutki or the Beaufort Sea. Is there any thinking? We, we sort of focused on that uh, the European high north in right. some ways in the search and rescue. That's where most of the sh vessel activity is. I appreciate right. that. Any thought about uh, bringing that uh, east? Well, certainly I would welcome it. Good. <laughs> we learn the most lessons when we're directly engaged and we're, when we're trying to organize uh, the event. Uh, my understanding is it generally follows the rotation of the Arctic Council chairmanship. And so each nation, uh, each Arctic Council member has the opportunity to uh, bring it to their region and try to learn their own lessons. So we'll continue to participate uh, in that. Uh, but certainly uh, between us and uh, our Russian neighbors and the Canadians, you know, we're very much willing to host um, uh, further exercises in our area to try to gain, extract as much you know, operational knowledge out of those as we can. It would be interesting to see if, if the Chinese as observers could, how do we bring in mm. uh, the, the countries beyond the eight Arctic right. Council members, how we can welcome uh, other participating countries that are going to have physical assets in the Arctic. How can and, we integrate yeah, that? Yeah, and I, I think that's a natural progression of yeah. the Arctic Coast Guard Forum. I don't think they're there quite yet, but, yeah. uh, but I think that that's certainly something we can look forward to in the future. So thinking about Arctic Shield, um, what was the thing that surprised you about uh, Arctic Shield this year? Uh, anything in sort of the, the forward operating locations? And I'm wondering if you're seeing with permafrost thaw, coastal erosion, is the, the climactic impacts affecting Coast Guard facilities, hangars, operations? I'd just be curious to know if you're really seeing a physical infrastructure impact from this extraordinary climate change. The, uh, so the, the Arctic Council search and rescue exercise that we did um, off of uh, Kotzebue last year had to be relocated 24 hours before the exercise started because of weather conditions. These are the, these are the, the conditions that we find operating every day in the Arctic. Uh, I know there's already been uh, just this season alone, and really the storm season is uh, September, October, November. Uh, there's already been a number of warnings put out to places like Shishmaref that are uh, already struggling with coastal erosion, and uh, and they suffered some damage during some of these storms that happened normally when there would be ice, uh, but are much more impactful when there's not ice present. Um, you know, in terms of our annual operations, um, I kind of often get asked, <clears throat> with all the activity that you have going on there, what are your what are your still kind of big concerns? What what do I lose sleep over overnight? Uh, and uh, and I would tell you, it's still things like uh, responding to an oil spill. 
which is going to be so hard because of the distances, because of the remoteness. There's a lack of technology still for uh, recovering oil from ice-congested waters. And, uh, and then the other is the, mass, the potential for a mass rescue. And a mass rescue could be um, you know, any, anywhere north of just a handful of, handful of people. But the, the distances are so great, um, and uh, the, the difficulty in staging assets uh, is so significant that, um, uh, that that's what keeps me up at night. We had, um, just as an example, a search and rescue case uh, off of Barrow, Alaska this last summer where um, we didn't really know where. So this was a, a small 14-foot um, skiff with five people on board off of Barrow. We thought because this is what they told the folks in the village, they thought they were southeast of Barrow, close to the shore. It turns out they were 70 miles away, northwest of Barrow. But I looked at uh, my timeline for responding to that particular case. Uh, it would have taken the nearest cutter that I had more than a day to get there. Uh, I ended up sending two helicopters. Both of them uh, cracked windshields along the route because of all the debris and landing in some of these unimproved uh, uh, locations. I sent a C-130 up to provide uh, communications. They, uh, they had a bird strike, which grounded them. Uh, in the, at the end of the day, it was five other 14-foot boats from the, from the village of Barrow that were able to finally communicate and figure out that these folks were 70 miles away from where they said they were and go out and, and tow them in. Um, but that just gives you a sense of the difficulty of, of responding in a very harsh environment at, at very great distances. Yeah, it, it is amazing that we just don't even have the beds, uh, mm -hmm. depending on where an accident would hit. I think for some of us that were watching the Crystal Serenity over the la past two years, really a concern that if major facilities were needed, uh, they could not they could not provide those. How do you, you your community outreach is, is really, you are the face of the federal government to many Alaskans. You really touch them in many, many ways. What are the concerns that you're hearing from the local communities about uh, further Arctic economic development if we see more shipping traffic? Mm. Uh, what are they saying to you? Uh, well, first they start off with, we want to see more Coast Guard. Which Always. I like, but I like that too. <laughs> but it also puts pressure on me yeah. to uh, to do the best I can with the resources that uh, that the commandant gives me, which are substantial, but uh, but there's still not enough. Um, but the other thing that uh, always comes up in conversation is uh, really two things. One is they want to know what traffic is in their area, and uh, and so one of the things that we're working on is you know maritime domain awareness uh, in terms of the Coast Guard having the information is one thing. We can achieve that, but being able to provide that information out to the local communities, to the people who are operating ships in the region, to the environmental, uh, non-governmental organizations that want to help track uh, marine mammal activity, those sorts of things. That's a much harder task for us, and that's kind of the next evolution of our MDA, is being able to share a tailored picture with all the different users that need that information in the maritime domain. Uh, the other thing that I hear consistently is, I want to keep the ships far enough off that they're not going to impact my, my way of life, including subsistence fishing and whaling and sealing and so forth. We, generally speaking, we find that uh, at least native, uh, Alaskan natives like the idea of um, increased uh, business as long as it doesn't impact them you know, very materially uh, w within, their, within their homes. And, and that's, you know, a, it, to us, it's a very pragmatic position for them to take. Absolutely. One last question before I turn to the audience. 
Uh, how concerned should we be about upticks in illegal fisheries? Um, is that what sort of preoccupies your law enforcement work? It's really the IUU, and are you seeing uh, a diversity of uh, flagged vessels doing that, or is it persistent from a small group yeah. of flagged nations? I'd just be curious, because we're, we're seeing where the agreements with the coastal, the Arctic coastal states in, for the central Arctic, uh, the, the moratorium, mm -hmm. if you will, right. uh, even before fishing stocks are evident, but these fishing stocks appear to be moving north for cooler waters. That could set off a competition. I just welcome your thoughts on IUU. Yeah, I think it's uh, very reasonable to anticipate uh, the northward migration of IUU activity in the future. And there's a few reasons I say that. One is kind of on a global scale, IUU is a problem that all nations face and the need for protein is, continues to grow. We see through our, uh, our cooperative efforts with the Russians that they have a significant IU problem within their EEZ. Uh, a lot of this is transshipment, meaning uh, Russian vessels are catching uh, crab and pollock and other species and then transferring them to vessels who will carry them out of Russian waters, often through US waters, to ports which um, lack the basic enforcement uh, necessary to account for that catch. So it's never accounted against quotas that Russia establishes for itself. And, um, and those are the types of cases where we've helped them. Um, but it's also interesting, while there is a moratorium on the high seas in the Arctic, and uh, Arctic Council nations have agreed to uh, uh, do uh, moratoriums in some of their EEZs, like the US, that applies to federal fisheries. There are active state commercial fisheries. So for example, the city of Kotzebue above the Arctic Circle uh, lands more than 400,000 pounds of salmon every year. Wow. It's, a, it's an active, viable commercial fisheries. And, um, and so that demonstrates that, uh, that fisheries are, are, uh, are active there. And I, I suspect anywhere where there's active, you know, there's a, a viable fisheries, IUU will follow. And so I think it's just a matter of time before we start seeing a northward migration currently just south of the of the Bering Strait, you know, northward through the Bering Strait into, into the central Arctic. Just curious, you're seeing more Asian flagged vessels or Asian origin vessels that are part of that? I'm just wondering, because the, the need for protein is yeah. so great in the Asia-Pacific region. Um, yes, I, you know, I'm not gonna necessarily attribute it to a right. single country right. Right. Um, or a set of countries, but certainly uh, Asian flagships, and a lot of these are flags of convenience, right. Uh, right. as you know, and so it's really hard to trace you know where the activity is coming from, but uh, but yeah, it's all you know Pacific Asian uh, countries that yeah. are, are generally involved here. Fascinating. All right, I'm ready to unleash unleash an audience that's very knowledgeable of this area. If you have a question for Admiral McAllister, please raise your hand and uh, please give us your affiliation. Any questions, comments? You've so dazzled them; they have no <laughs> questions. Or ah, oh, yes, we always have that moment. So, ma'am, I'll take your question first. The microphone is coming, and then, sir, I'll come to you. Yes, please uh, stand right. up and introduce. I'll you. stand. I'm also a little vertically challenged. So, oh. Admiral McAllister, thank you so much for your time. It's good to see you. Good to see Thanks you. Thanks for too. making the long trip. Uh, I'm Commander Kate Higgins Bloom. I'm the Coast Guard Fellow at the Brookings Institution. Um, so, I work with John a lot. Fellow, 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 fellows. My question was about. Uh, industry activity, sort of generating new risk, maybe unaccounted for risk that the Coast Guard has to prepare for, particularly oil spills or SAR, and, and how we're resourcing that. And if there's been any conversation with industry about what their contribution might be, sort of pre-need, so we don't have a, another sort of deep water horizon situation, only 
with ICE? And then who might the policy advocates be outside of Coast Guard? Just because this isn't necessarily um, DHS's hot burning issue right now. Right. So where are the other places in government where we might look for advocates to carry some of this water? Yeah, great question, uh, Kate. I appreciate that. And I'll, use, I'll, I'll carry on the, the example that you kind of started with Deepwater Horizon. It's, uh, it's interesting. Because of the problems with uh, geography, with distance, with uh, environment, uh, the rules for oil spill response in Alaska are actually different than they are elsewhere in the United States. Uh, I, didn't, I didn't appreciate that until I got there. Um, we have what we call alternative planning criteria there, which means that you can propose any alternatives which still allow you to prevent and respond to oil spills, but, uh, but they don't look the same as they do in the Port of Baltimore or, or anywhere else. Um, and so uh, just using that as an example, what industry has done is they've created a lot of uh, flyaway capability and mobile capability. So we have a lot of barges uh, that uh, carry uh, diesel fuel and other, uh, other types of fuels that go north through the Bering Strait. They actually carry their own oil spill response uh, gear on board. And there are always, uh, in that in, for, the, for the barges in particular, there are always flyaway kits sitting on a ramp, an aircraft ramp uh, in Anchorage, uh, ready to go to wherever the nearest hub community is where you might need to respond from. Um, so industry is still active uh, in oil spill responses, but because uh, industry is in really just in certain spots in Alaska, uh, Prudhoe Bay as an example with the large oil uh, and gas footprint there, um, the state and the US Coast Guard itself has a lot of equipment that we provide out to local communities. And we train people to be first responders. So if there's an oil spill as an example, they'll They'll go out in small boats and pull boom and protect their most immediate resources, which buys us a little bit of time to get either governmental or industry resources on scene to be able to respond. But again, the distances are so significant, the environmental challenges, whether it's ice, whether it's wind, whether it's low visibility are so significant that I often have to remind people your expectations in terms of timeliness of response and volume of response needs to be lower in the more extreme regions of Alaska than they are elsewhere in the United States. I have to say a personal reflection. I participated a couple of years ago in a tabletop exercise uh, with the Coast Guard. And for me, the takeaway was we have to practice telling the National Command Authority what we cannot do mm. rather than what we can do. And we're trained to understand what can we do. Right. And the, will the vessels be there? This you know, could be a six-hour flight. You may not have the uh, availability to get there. That, to me, exactly. was a total different mentality of how we're trained to, uh, to be responsive. Fantastic. I'll have a questioner right up here, please. First of all, thank you guys again for speaking to us today. My name is Gabriel. I'm a student at American University. Um, so whenever we speak about the Arctic, we usually speak about cooperation between the United States, um, China, and Russia. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about cooperation between other um, states that are active in the region. Arctic Coast Guard, the, the Coast Guard Forum may be a good example of that. Certainly. Um, so we have fantastic relationships. Well, let, me, let me mention Canada first and foremost. Uh, as our neighbor and partner, and uh, you know, we, within the 17th district, I actually have two borders with Canada, one down by the Dixon entrance, kind of my southeast, and in the Arctic. And uh, we could find no better partners in terms of sharing maritime domain awareness, in terms of sharing response capability. Just, just as an example, 
uh, for the search and, search and rescue exercise that we did back in uh, the summer of 2016, uh, now a little over a year ago. Uh, the Canadians flew helicopters out. They flew them about 1,500 miles to participate in this uh, exercise that we did. And they have something called an Arctic Sustainment Package. So this is equipment that you can load in the back of a C-130, a C-5, drop uh, out of the back of the aircraft onto a beach in, in the middle of nowhere, and it'll provide, the, it'll provide tents, it provides vehicles, uh, comes with you know, pararescue uh, folks who can do first aid and triage. Um, it allows you to provide kind of the first level of care for people who may be coming off of a ship you know, that has some sort of incident, a fire or sinking or whatever it might be. And, and they actually have the majority of these Arctic sustainment packages and we have an agreement with them between the National Guard in Alaska and the Canadians that will share those so that if either country needs those, they're ready at a moment's, moment's notice. Um, we also work uh, through the Arctic Coast Guard Forum with really all of the uh, Arctic Council nations, uh, Finland, uh, Denmark, and so forth. And, um, and we, have, we have fantastic relationships. Most of that is focused on kind of the strategic level, the sharing of lessons learned, information sharing. Um, there are some new capabilities being developed to have kind of operational day-to-day -day coordination of activities through various information sharing systems. For, so for example, right now I have uh, the ability to email uh, my North Pacific Coast Guard Forum counterparts, including the Russians. Uh, it automatically translates for us. There's always somebody on the other end of the, the computer system that can uh, answer uh, the, uh, the emails. And we're, we're thinking about taking that and applying it to the Arctic Coast Guard Forum so it's more of a global international flavor. And, uh, and so there's just a variety of, of kind of common efforts going on that I think will um, serve all Arctic nations. And uh, to the extent that other nations uh, participate either in the Arctic Council now as observers or, uh, you know, we were talking earlier about the potential for the Arctic Coast Guard Forum to expand to non-Arctic nations. I think, you know, we'll, we'll be able to employ kind of those same uh, outcomes across a, a broader group of, of nations that are involved in the Arctic. I'm going to take the moderator's prerogative for the last question. Has the implementation of the Polar Code, in your view, gone smoothly? If this is brand new, just uh, mandatory as of January the 1st. Would love your reflections on that. And, and if I'm reading my uh, Arctic tea leaves, I'm not sure that's the correct uh, <laughs> putting together a phrase. Um, Really, the next movement I see potentially uh, is the banning of heavy fuel oils and thinking about the environmental impact of that. Mm -hmm. and I'm just wondering if, yeah. again, from your operational perspective, uh, how are you thinking about uh, HFOs and, and the future? Yeah, okay. Um, so the polar code actually has two, two parts to it. There's the environmental, uh, the MARPOL-related uh, uh, requirements that are already in effect. Uh, as of the 1st of January, and then the ship construction uh, provisions, which will be a, what we call a rolling implementation. Some of them require modifications to ships. Some of them, you know, ships won't, won't be able to comply under and they'll have to be replaced. Um, and so that'll take a number of years to implement fully. On the ship construction side, as, uh, as a port state, we'll inspect ships that are coming to the U.S. and ensure that they comply with those regulations. There's already... Um, a uh, joint um, effort between the Russians and the, the Finns to try to provide a information sharing um, framework so that every, every nation has 
the, the data on each other's vessels and the compliance with the, with the polar code so we know where every vessel is uh, in its implementation. Um, the, I think the more current and interesting question is on the environmental uh, piece at this point. And um, we're doing a variety of things to make sure that we're able to uh, enforce the environmental provisions. Part of that is, frankly, presence, the ability of whether it's uh, Coast Guard ships or, uh, or other um, ships, you know, uh, NOAA ships as an example, to identify potential environmental uh, infractions and, and take uh, action uh, against the vessel, uh, you know, including notification to the flag state or the, the insurance companies that, uh, that you know, prescribe rates for, for operating those vessels as examples. Um, so presence is a big piece of it. Education is a big piece of it. We're out there trying to let people know uh, that these rules exist. There's, there's I think, uh, an element of local involvement in this, you know, kind of the DHS, if you see something, say something, and, and we'll be able to respond to that because it is such a large area. We, we certainly can't do it alone with our assets. And so, uh, so there's a variety of different areas where we're going to try to make sure that, um, uh, that the polar code is implemented smartly and that compliance levels are high. On the fuel oil issue, I'm, I'm no expert on, uh, on fuel oils. I know from my engagement with environmental NGOs that that's their next focus area, and I think that the U.S. has said, yes, we will take a look at that in concert with the other members of the IMO. Uh, but there are some technical difficulties with shifting from heavy fuel oils to lighter fuel oils that, you know, frankly, will change the industry pretty significantly that I think need to be part of that discussion and may not, and may make it harder to implement than than a lot of people realize. To be continued. Indeed. Well, Admiral McAllister, thank you. You are the front lines, on the front lines for the American Arctic. We're so grateful for the Coast Guard and what they do for us every single day. Thank you. Thank you for being the bearer of good public news on submitting the vessel traffic management scheme for the Bering Strait. We can already say our report, check one, the recommendation <laughs> already done, which is always fantastic. But uh, this is an area, I think, as you said, uh, to be proactive and have things in place, heaven forbid, if an accident were to happen. That's the hardest thing for a policymaker to do, Indeed. do it before the crisis happens. So thank you for your insights. Thank you for being here with us. It's a long way from Juneau. We're grateful, but we want you to get back home to keep us <laughs> safe. Uh, and please join me in thanking Admiral McAllister for a great presentation. Thank you.